your office uh, or your school or wherever you're headed. And um, just at lunchtime or something, standing up a table and, uh, and explaining to everyone, Do you know, I believe in the supernatural. I, I pick something maybe. I, I believe in angels. How, how comfortable do you feel doing that? Picture yourself doing it. I think it will vary, but I think for, for some of you, I guess particularly perhaps for those of you who are in education right now, I think you'd get, uh, you'd get pretty uncomfortable saying those sorts of things in public, wouldn't you? I mean, I imagine going back into my office and saying those things, and I, I'd feel pretty far out. You definitely get some funny looks. Well, there's an incredibly powerful default setting in our Western world. There's an incredibly powerful normal way for people to see things clicks in without us even thinking about it. It's a simple but very significant idea. And it says, there's nothing more to this than meets the eye. It says, the only things that are real are things you can see, things you can touch, things you can, things you can measure, things you can experiment on in a lab. These are the only things that are real. I think that's what the world around us says very much of the time. But... Do you know, it doesn't, always, it doesn't just say that. It goes further. It also says anyone who disagrees with that, they better be pretty embarrassed. It says anyone who disagrees is a fool. Anyone who disagrees, you're like a leftover from another age. Anyone who has a different view about what's real needs to keep that to themselves or, or be very embarrassed. It's actually somewhat odd than th that that can be such a strong feeling, given there's a recent survey uh, in the UK came out saying 55% of people in the UK believe in something supernatural. 55% of people believe that there's something more to this than just what meets the eye. I mean, think about that for a moment. That's more than half the people in the country believe there's something beyond this. And... It hasn't always been this way either. Do you know, it's only 300 years old, this idea that there is nothing else. It's only 300 years ago, there was this, uh, this stage called the Enlightenment, where this idea became intellectual mainstream, where this became the, the, the way that clever people think about the world, the only reasonable way to think about the world. There's quite a lot of history before that, actually. Quite a lot of time before this Enlightenment. Quite a lot of clever people kicking around. And you know, for them, it was completely acceptable, completely ordinary, completely normal to believe that there was more to this than meets the eye, that it isn't just this world we can touch and sense. Now, we're continuing our series in the book of Daniel today, and it's, Daniel's a great book. It's home to some much-loved children's stories, right? Daniel and the lion's den, yeah, the, 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 the writing on the wall, um, the, the, the fiery furnace, you know, these stories. It's also home to some rather more challenging prophetic visions. And tonight, we're, we're going on to look at a bit more of that. We're in Daniel 10, so I wanted to prepare you that this is supernatural central. But a moment of context before we dive into the text. Um, where are we? Um, Daniel 10 verse 1 gives a summary. Now, you should have got a sheet as you came in. Did everyone get a sheet? On that sheet, um, you should have the text written out. And verse 1, let me read it for you, says... In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. 
the understanding of the message came to him in a vision. Now, where are we in the, in the big story? Um, we're, we're about 536 BC, if that's any help to you. Not so, not so helpful. Okay, here's where we're up to. God's people, Israel, they've been in the land for a long time. And uh, now they've been conquered by the Babylonian Empire. They've been kicked out into exile, thrown into other countries. And uh, many of them were taken to this place called Babylon. And it's been a dark time for Israel. But after 70 years, a really peculiar thing happened. A new king came in and took over. And the new king said, do you know what? Why don't you go home? Go home. You go back to Israel. And uh, you, get, you get yourself sorted out there. Any Israelite who wanted to was free to go back and set things up again. So if you were here last week... You'll remember that is exactly what God promised would happen after 70 years. It's exactly what Daniel was using to, to petition God, to pray to God with. And um, the verse we've read just here, verse 1 says we're in the third year of this Cyrus, this king who sent the people back. So Israel had begun to go back from exile. And you can read about how that, how that worked out in um, the book of Ezra. In the Bible, it's there as well. So uh, the short story is not going particularly well. But Daniel, Daniel is still here in Babylon and he's an old man by now. He's really pretty old. People aren't quite agreed on how old he is, but very old, especially in those days. He's an aged character, but God is not done with him yet. God's not done with him at all. You see, a revelation was given to Daniel, a message from God, and it was a significant message that needed some explanation. Now, if you've been here for the last few weeks, you will have seen some of the sorts of messages Daniel gets, and you can understand why these messages might need a bit of explanation. Um, but I have to warn you, there's a, there's a cliffhanger coming tonight. I'm not going to talk about the message that Daniel received here. Not at all. Um, you have to come back next week if that's what you want. So there's your, there's your cliffhanger. Um, or you can read ahead after we're done tonight. Um, but I'm not going to talk about it because there's a whole chapter of the Bible devoted to the process Daniel goes through in receiving this explanation of the message. And it's, it's slightly odd, really, that there's so much text explaining what happened to Daniel. But it's here for a reason. It's here to help us think. There's nothing that's in our Bible by accident. There's significant lessons for us here. And so that's what we're going to study tonight. So first verse of summary over. What happens next is we turn over into Daniel's diary, Daniel's memoirs. So Hannah's going to come up for us now and uh, read through, uh, if I can find the microphone. Or Hannah's going to project. It's there. smooth not on. It was me. Sorry. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen, 
with a belt of the finest gold round his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you, and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me twenty-one days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face towards the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips and opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I am helpless. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, O man highly esteemed, he said. Peace, be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And I, in the first year of Darius the Mede, took my stand to support and protect him. Great. Thank you very much. Now, you've got one of these handouts. To get us started in engaging with the text, here's what I want you to do, a simple exercise. Can you go through the text we just read? And I want you to underline every physical reaction there is to the vision Daniel has, okay? I'll give you a minute. Um, pop your hand up if you have a pen. And what, what did you find? What did you, can, can you call out things you found? Um, so what, what physical reactions do we see here? What do we got? You can speak, it's okay. Trembling, yep. Sorry? No strength. Deep sleep, mourning, deathly pale, helpless, speechless, strength gone, sorry, say again, gazing, so quite a list there, right? There's quite a lot of specific physical reactions Daniel has. And 
It's not there without a purpose. It's not an accident that we get so much detail about this. So can you, can you summarize all those? If you were trying to sum up all those reactions, what, what overall impression do you get of Daniel's experience here when he has that vision? What's the, the overall experience? Fear. Yeah, awestruck. Just some um, proper old-fashioned awe with a like, healthy side of fear and terror, isn't it? Have you ever had an experience anything like that? Have you, have you had a moment where you just wanted to, to fall to the floor in terror, where you just felt your heart sink within you? I, I don't think I've ever been quite this far along the line, but, uh, but I've, I've known things like this. There was, there was one particular one on, the, uh, on the, the last day of our holiday this summer, which uh, unfortunately I thought was the second to last day of our holiday this summer. And we were casually having breakfast uh, in, in our tent. And uh, somebody from the campsite came down and they said, uh, uh, Monsieur Band, uh, you, you are leaving today. And I said, no, we're not leaving today. No, no, we're leaving tomorrow. It's okay. And they said, no, you are leaving today. <laughs> no, no, we're definitely leaving tomorrow. No, I'm sure it's tomorrow. I'll just go and check the papers. So I went. Um, I, I checked the papers and... We were leaving today. In fact, we were on a ferry um, quite a distance away in about four hours. And my heart sunk. Now, that is just a fraction of what's going on here, right? But do you see, do you see Daniel is absolutely terrified? Now, my question to you is, why did Daniel feel all these things? What was it that did this to him? What was it that caused all these reactions? It was the vision he saw, right? And what was the vision of? The vision was, in verse 5, there before me was a man. At this, at this vision of a man, Daniel has this reaction of absolute terror. Enough to floor Daniel. And remember who Daniel is, okay? Daniel has been at the heart of the Babylonian Empire for most of his life. He's seen a thing or two. Daniel has already seen amazing visions in these last chapters we've been reading about, right? Daniel is the one who faced up to a den full of lions. You don't hear when he faces the den full of lions about him falling on the floor, unable to breathe, helpless, do you? Daniel's a pretty solid bloke, and this terrifies him like nothing before. So, so who is it? Who is this man that he's having a vision of here? Well, we don't know. We're not told. He's, he's just called a man here. And if you know your Bible, the, the, the narrative, the story here is going to ring a couple of bells. Um, I think there are two particular connections. You see in, in verse 9, not in verse 9, in verse 7, it was Daniel was the only one who saw the vision, but all the guys with him were terrified and fled. Now that sounds a bit like Paul. Paul's famous conversion on the Damascus Road. Something somewhat similar happened. Paul sees the vision. Everyone else is just terrified and hears the voice. So Paul meets with Jesus on the Damascus Road. Is Daniel meeting with Jesus here? Is that what's happening? The, the other part of the Bible, if you know your stuff, you might be drawn to is Revelation, another vision right at the end of the Bible. Where there's another picture of an amazing man. And it has a description that looks quite similar to this. And it causes a reaction in the guy seeing it quite similar to this too. And in Revelation, it's definitely Jesus we're dealing with. So, is it Jesus that Daniel's seeing here? Lots of people think so, but I, I think there's a problem with that. You see, if you look at verse 13, flip over to the back, and in verse 13, the prince 
of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days, he says. And then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help. Now I have to ask you, doesn't it strike you as wrong that anyone would have been able to hold up Jesus if Jesus wanted to get something done? That seem odd. Could Jesus possibly need some help getting anything done? I, I don't think so. We sing with our kids, Jesus is the mighty, mighty king, and God made him the boss of everything. I think that's right. Jesus doesn't need anyone's help to get done what he sets out to get done. I don't think the man who terrifies Daniel can be Jesus, but he's definitely well out there into the supernatural zone, isn't he? He's definitely a supernatural servant of God. Maybe an angel going about God's business, and, and he's, he's mighty, at least he's, he's mighty terrifying for Daniel, who's been through a lot. So he's obviously pretty powerful. More terrifying than the angel Gabriel that Daniel's seen before, uh, a few chapters back here, because he gets a significantly more intense reaction here. Now, lots of people have written lots and lots about who this guy might be and what the symbolism is of all the different parts, all the different materials used and that sort of thing. But I, I don't think that's the key thing to the text. The key, if you look at the quantity of text, is the reaction, isn't it? It's just how terrifying the guy is. If you look at all the things you underline on your sheets, there's a big, big Reaction. Lots of the text is given to make it crystal clear to us that this guy is terrifying, absolutely terrifying to Daniel. So take this emphasis. The text tells us this guy is awesome and terrifying. Now put it alongside what Daniel is told is going on in verse 13. In verse 13, the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. What could hold up something this mighty? Well, it's obviously not a mere man, is it? This prince of the Persian kingdom. Daniel can't even stand in the presence of this guy. So there's no way a mere man has been holding this guy up for 21 days. That wouldn't make any sense. The prince of the Persian kingdom, whether we like it or not, must be a similarly powerful spiritual force. So what do we got here? We've got mighty supernatural beings struggling against each other behind the scenes of this war between the kingdoms. We've got angels and demons at war. This sounds like a good film plot, doesn't it? Now, I bet there are some of you here struggling with this. I can see through your poker faces that you have nutcase on my forehead already. Um, you're thinking, we know this stuff isn't real. You're thinking, this is just foolish, old-fashioned superstition, right? We, people used to believe that sort of thing, but now we know better. Now we're clever, rational, sensible people. Now we know none of this stuff is for real. This is like believing in the force. This is like believing in the tooth fairy, right? That's what's going on here. This is, this is Father Christmas territory. Well, let me challenge you for a minute. Do you know that this isn't real? How exactly is it that you go about deciding what's real? How are you so sure? Um, let's see how you might argue about this, okay? What you might say is, I'll tell you what's real. Real are things that I personally experience. That's what real is. If I can touch it, um, if I can see it, if I can experience it, that's real. Stuff I don't experience, you know, I can't say that's real. Well, two problems for you. 
Sounds like a reasonable argument, but, but here's critique number one, the, the, the Matrix critique. Who has, who has seen the Matrix? A little bit dated, but show of hands. Yeah, okay. How do you know what you're experiencing is for real? How do you know you're not just inside some giant simulation? This is some Truman show. How do you know you're not just a brain stuck in some vat somewhere, hooked up to some wires by a mad scientist who's playing out some experiment on you? How do you know what you experience is real? But that's only half the problem with that idea of figuring out what's real. The other side is far worse. What about things you'd be happy to take for real that you haven't personally experienced? I've never met the queen. Is the queen real? I'm pretty happy with that. What about Australia? I've never been to Australia. Is Australia real? Okay, so this idea that stuff I've experienced personally is the only stuff that's real, that's not going to get us there. We've got to go a bit further. So where might we go from here? What about, what about this? Um, people I trust have experienced this, so it's real. What about that? That gets me the queen, nearly. Um, that, that gets me Australia. I know people who've been to Australia, and I trust them, but it opens up a bit of a thorny question. Who is it that you trust? How do you decide who to trust? Um, What about some guy in a mental asylum, okay, who tells you that the talking carrot he sees is real? Is the talking carrot real? So then we've got this question of, who do I trust? Who who do I trust to tell me what's real? What about, I'll just trust reasonable people to tell me what's real. That's what I'll do. Well, tell me, what's your your definition of reasonable? What's What's your definition of sensible? Isn't there actually a pretty big danger that what we come down to here is we say, People who think the same things as me, they're the ones I trust about what's real. Somebody I, somebody I don't agree with, well, I don't trust them and what they experience isn't real. But that's a bit of a non-starter, isn't it? So if you're ready to close the door on all this supernatural stuff, you just want to write it off, um, I want to encourage you to hang on for a minute. What we're looking at here is we're looking at somebody's testimony. We're looking at Daniel's memoirs. This is what Daniel wrote down about what happened. Daniel experienced this as real. He was there, and he had these extreme physical reactions. So before you want to write all this off as not real, be, be honest with yourself about why you're doing that. Is it because you've, you've already decided you don't need to trust this guy? Head hurting, sorry. That was a bit of a philosophical digression, but back to Daniel. Back to the text. Okay, so this supernatural conflict, is it, is it real? Do do you trust Daniel's testimony? Well, well, actually, it's not just Daniel's testimony. You see, angels show up in every major part of Scripture. Jesus, in his temptation, he, he speaks with the devil. He's ministered to by angels. Jesus contends with evil spirits. He casts them out. We've been learning about that in the mornings. Um, Paul, Paul is prevented from heading in certain directions by spiritual powers. Peter, Peter is led out of prison by an angel. So, You see, it's not just Daniel's testimony that there are powerful supernatural beings kicking around in this world. It's the broad testimony of the Bible. If you want want a Bible without the supernatural, what you need is a pair of these. You need to get busy with your scissors and start snipping out the bits that you don't agree with. And uh, there are people who do that. Uh, there was a guy who, who made his own version of the Bible. He cut out all the bits they thought, nah, that can't be true. Nah, I don't like that. Nah, I don't like that. But that's not a safe way to approach this. So don't treat this book like that. If I can speak to the Christians here for a minute, I think we need to be absolutely clear that this is our book, that this is where we find our truth. It's all for real. And 
the world around us, the world we live in and swim in, all the time it is telling us that there's nothing more than what you can see, what you can touch, what you can measure. It's telling us all the time to set this aside as fantasy. To take your Bible and pop it on your bookcase next to Harry Potter in the fiction section. That's what the world all around us is telling us every day. And we need to be quite deliberate to not fall into that and to not flatten everything out. Paul is one of Jesus' earliest followers and he writes to one of the churches he started. He writes, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. You get that? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So, so what's it against then? Well, Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's, that's pretty supernatural, right? We, we're in the thick of a spiritual struggle which has real impacts in the present. And ultimately, this is a struggle for individuals eternal lives. If we ignore this spiritual dimension, imagine this, it's like, it's like trying to win at chess, but only playing with, with pawns, right? It's like, it's like owning your own private jet and then driving it down the M6 rather than flying over the traffic jam. It's like, it's like living in a world that's only black and white. It's missing a whole dimension of what's real and what's happening, a critical part of it. Actually, I want to argue it's missing the critical part of it the same Paul guy writes to another of the churches he started he says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel Paul's saying a a spiritual power the God of this age is making it impossible for people to believe the good news about Jesus the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers they cannot see the light of the gospel so Remember how Jesus talks about becoming a Christian. What's the phrase he uses? He says, you must be born again. And he doesn't mean physical birth, does he? He doesn't mean climbing back into the womb and popping out. He means spiritual birth. It's not a physical reality. It's a spiritual reality. It's very real. A very real change from eternal life, eternal death to eternal life, from from imprisoned spirit, blinded, to glorious freedom in Christ. You see, the spiritual dimension is a critical part of what we believe, critical part of what matters, even at the individual level. And there's a real danger. We start losing this. We start thinking very much on the practical, on the flat again. We start thinking the way we go about seeing more people become Christians is all we need to do is present the right information. We need to deliver the right facts. We need to do it in the right setting. We follow the right process. We do the right actions. And that's what happens. But It's not a rational, material thing. That's what this says. This says it's a supernatural, spiritual thing. When we we fall into that way of thinking, we're falling into the mindset of this world. We're being conformed to this world. And we have to recognize, if we want anyone at all to come and follow Jesus, absolutely anyone, what we are looking for is nothing less than a supernatural miracle. That's what we're looking for. This is not a natural thing. We're utterly committed to the reality of this supernatural dimension. So, I'm aware this is pretty hairy stuff. Uh, If I was picking the first passage to preach on in a new church, I probably wouldn't have looked this one up. Um, But this 
This is one of the great strengths of the way we preach here. We, we pick an area of the Bible and we walk through it and we see what God has to say to us. We don't choose what we'd like to hear from him. We see what he's got to say to us. And this is what he's got to say to us this week. Now, I also think it's pretty easy to get carried away with this stuff. So I want to give you a little bit of balance. Um, if you find one of these red Bibles, there should be one in front of you. Find, find 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's on page 1160. Page 1160 in these red ones. Now, this is the the bit where Paul talks about the spiritual blindness, where he makes it plain there's there's a supernatural problem we're trying to solve and we want to see people come and follow Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 4. Can you see it there? The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. But it's also where Paul talks about his part in this story, okay? So what, what does he say he's doing in verse 2? Roll up to verse 2 above. What does he say he's doing? Not, not a rhetorical question. What does Paul say he is doing in verse 2? Sorry. He's setting forth the truth. He's, he's setting forth the truth plainly. What, what, what does he say he's doing in verse 5? Roll down to verse 5. He's preaching Christ. He's preaching Christ. So Paul fully gets that this is absolutely a supernatural thing we're talking about. He fully gets that this is not on our natural plane. This is a supernatural thing. And then what does he do? He does two very practical things about it. We have to keep those two together. You see, there's a, there's a spiritual reality. Only God can open blind eyes. And then there's a practical side that belongs to us. We preach Christ. We preach Christ and God opens blind eyes. Natural and, and supernatural. And while we're, while we're on the subject of the natural side of things, back over to Daniel for a moment. Um, back to the handouts. Can you find verse 12? Why has this amazing spiritual power come? In verse 12. Your words were heard and I have come in response to them. This amazing, terrifying, powerful angel came in response to Daniel's words, to Daniel's prayers. So when we consider the the hidden spiritual battles, which the Bible tells us are very real going on around us for, for countries, right? There's the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece is talking about, for cities, but for individuals as well. The God of this age has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. When we consider these battles, is there a part we can play? How do we engage? We can, we can pray. Right? We can pray. Like Daniel prayed and the angel came. Prayer is a, a powerful weapon. Angels are God's servants, his messengers. And in some way, at least to an extent, they're, they're, they're directed in response to our prayers. That's what this tells us here. But it's important that we get It's not prayer itself that has any sort of magical special power. Prayer doesn't have supernatural power to combat anything by itself. Daniel prays and God sends. It's God who has the power behind prayer. God is the one who has the power in this supernatural realm. We can ask God to intervene and ask him to work. Now, there's one final thing I have to say. Um, This can all sound a bit spooky, can't it? 
There are mighty supernatural creatures behind the scenes at war. Creatures who, if we saw them, we would be terrified. There's a, a, an invisible war where we've got no reporters embedded with either side. We've got no missile cams telling us how this is going. No news reports. But could you be spooked? Could this, could this worry you? Should we be worried? C.S. Lewis wrote really helpfully. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the demons. He said, one is to disbelieve in their existence altogether. And the other is to believe and have an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Disbelieve, excessive, unhealthy interest. Two sides you can fall off here. He goes on to say that they're equally pleased whichever side we fall on serves them. But the final thing I want us to see tonight addresses this because did you notice what the angel is going to tell Daniel in next week's installment? Take a look at verse 21 with me right down by the end. First, I will tell you what's written in the book of truth. The book of truth, the angel says. So the angel is sent by God to Daniel to tell him what's written in the book of truth. And what's written, as we're going to see next week, what's written is what's going to come. What's written in this book of truth is the future. And God has this book of truth. God knows what's going to happen in the future. Actually, it goes further than that. God writes this book of truth. God has set out what is going to happen all the way to the end, in every detail. Nothing happens without his say-so. There's, there's nothing at the international level. No kingdom rises or falls. No, no prince makes any declaration or move. Nothing happens without his say-so. Every king's heart, the Bible tells us, is in the Lord's hands, and he directs it like he directs a watercourse. Nothing happens without his say-so at the personal level. The psalmist says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So nothing happens without his say-so. Nothing happens in the spiritual world without his say-so. There's no power above him. There's nothing that can stand against him. He rules all of these things. See, God knows the future because God set the future. If you're worried by unseen powers, if you're worried by this idea that there's more going on behind the scenes and the real potential this has to, to interact with us in our world, remember these things too are subject to God's plan and his decrees. Every single one of these is on a leash. Victory is certain. Paul writes to another of his churches, he writes that Jesus having disarmed these spiritual powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, it says, triumphing over them by the cross he triumphed over them by the cross. He's made a spectacle of them. Defeated. Done. Conquered. Paul tells us to have confidence that Christ is the head over every power and authority. So, so we've got to keep that perspective. Mighty spiritual powers ranged against each other. Mighty, terrifying powers. But it's not a close thing. It's not like it could go either way. There's, there's no risk that this slips into extra time. There isn't going to be some sort of penalty shootout at the end. There's not one inch of the universe where God isn't sovereign all the time. So even though we're given a glimpse into the invisible war, 
we don't need to live in fear of it because our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Our God is higher than any other. He's over all these things. And what we're going to do now is we're going to respond to this by singing to God of his greatness. We're going to remind ourselves of his utter supremacy. So if I can ask the band to 